Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. blog arsecast right here on arsblog.com hope you're well it's been a little while since we've spoken hasn't it well not really we had the arsecast extra on monday but that was with james which is um i say that no reflection on james whatsoever i'm just saying that that was the arsecast extra it's a separate thing from the regular arsecast and we haven't had one of those since well before the interlull and then the interlull happened, of course, and we took into the interlull that, that delightful day out in Wales. What a, what a fun thing that was, losing to Swansea. Uh, so it's been kind of, well, I was expecting it to be a bit angrier and a bit grumpier than it has been. Because normally what happens is people just go bananas and mental and uh, cross and get very frustrated for, for ages. And that didn't seem to happen. Almost as if people went... Ah, fuck it. I'll just do something else for a while. And maybe that's good. Maybe that's a sign of a maturing fan base online that people are going and doing other things. Maybe they've got hobbies and lives and children and pets and jobs and things that they can distract themselves with before it all rears its ugly head again this weekend against Manchester United. Yes. Yes, Manchester United used to be such a fantastic, fierce, vicious, exciting, stomach-churning rivalry. It used to be just brilliant. It was brilliant because they were very good and we were very good and we were big and strong and they were big and strong and we played brilliant football and also kicked the living shit out of each other as much as possible. And uh, sometimes that was great and sometimes it went against us, but still... But still, to have that brilliant football with this undercurrent of aggression and perhaps violence was good. I enjoyed it, and I kind of miss it a little bit, but I don't think we're going to get that this weekend against Manchester United. I think we've only won one of our last 14 games against them. We've uh, drawn three, won one, and lost ten, which isn't a great record, you have to say, overall. And that one that we won, if you remember, was an Aaron Ramsey goal. And when the hell was that? I just went and checked that, and it was in May 2011. May 2011. But wow, check this out, right? I was just looking at that, and maybe I've forgotten, but from March the 5th, 2011, through to the final day of the season, 22nd of May, we won just two games. I think one of them was a... Champions League game, so that doesn't really count. One was an FA Cup game we lost against Manchester United. But the run in, in all competitions from March 2011 through to May 2011 was draw, loss, loss, draw, draw, win, draw, draw, loss, win, loss, loss, draw. What a fucking shit end to the season that was. 
I'd forgotten completely about that, or how bad it was. Shit. Compared to that, things are brilliant right now. Maybe that's what we should all do, go back and look at how terrible the end of that season was. Fuck. That, that Manchester United win then was a rare, a rare piece of sunshine on what was a cloudy, cloudy run. Like a tiny, brilliant diamond in a pile of septic poo. That's what that was. Wow. And that was the last time that we beat Manchester United. And since then, they've beaten us loads of times. And we haven't really won. And even last season when they were against David Moyes. And oh, it's not good. So, um, so there you go. But look, maybe, maybe, maybe the law of averages is on our side. And look, in these dark times, when things aren't going so well, when people are disenchanted and disconsolate, not terribly confident, I think we can take some comfort from a completely made-up law that doesn't exist and has no bearing on anything. But look, we are, during this show, going to look ahead to that game and obviously look at the respective strengths of the two teams, uh, which we know are not defensive. We're also going to be joined in a couple of moments' time by the author of a very interesting Arsenal book. I think more people should do Arsenal books. There aren't enough at this moment. There just aren't. Uh, But while we're on that, if you're living far away and abroad and you were thinking of getting a copy, a hardback limited edition copy of Together, the story of Arsenal's unbeaten season, I would suggest that you make the order relatively quickly because of Christmas post and all that kind of stuff. It can take a while for a good heavy package like that to get around the world. So you can find that at shop.arsblog.com. That's Together, the story of Arsenal's unbeaten season. But beyond all that, because it is this time of year, because it's got cold. I don't know what it's like where you are, but I'm looking out the window here at some kind of freezing fog type shit, and it's cold here, and it's going to be cold, I don't know, for the next few months anyway. And that's not good. And if you live somewhere near the equator or somewhere where it's warm all the time, well, I want to say fuck you, but of course I can't because you've made a good choice. And I'm the one who's here in a climate which has me cold. And my heating is broken as well, which is a pain in the arse. Went to uh, turn it on there this week and nothing. It doesn't work. And it's cold up here in my office. If I stop talking, you can, you can tell immediately how cold it is. Yes, yes, I have cartoon teeth. And what of it? What's it to you? Anyway, I've got to get that sorted. But look, on the whole concept of coldness, if you're somewhere warm, don't worry about this bit. But if you are somewhere cold and you would like to stay warm, then our good friends at Savile Rogue have given us prizes to give away over the next few weeks. You know they do the best football scarves, proper cashmere football scarves, beanie hats, gloves, all kinds of stuff that will keep you toasty and warm in the stadium, outside the stadium, uh, standing around drinking beer after the game or before the game. SavileRogue.com is where it's at and we'll give you the competition details plus as always we will have a discount code for you which you can use on their site if you want to do a bit of shopping uh, for Christmas presents or for yourself so stay tuned and we've got that coming a little bit later on in the show our first guest this week though is a man who's written a new book well of course he's written a new book if he'd written an old book it would be plagiarism so he's written a brand new book. It's called Red Letter Days, and the author John Sperling is with me now. Hi there. Hi. Red Letter Days is about some of the, as you call it, the epoch-defining moments uh, in in Arsenal's history, including key matches, tactical revolutions. What um, what's the overall theme of the book, uh, and and how do you um, how do you approach these 
subjects and topics that people generally know quite a lot about. Yeah, I mean, as you as you said, there are a lot of books out on Arsenal this Christmas. And there have been, you know, lots of books written about Arsenal's greatest games and that sort of thing down the years. So what I've tried to do in Red Letter Days is to go back to um, the key games, the key transfers, even the the um, founding of the WM formation uh, in 1927 by Buchan and Chapman, and just try to go through and sift through the stories and try and revise some of the views on it. I mean, I think that in, in any football club history, there's tens and tens of thousands of incidents which turn a game or turn um, a, a, you know, a broken down move into a goal or something like that. Mm. But I've tried to think about the kind of, I hate this phrase, but I'll say it, non-negotiable kind of um, events that have happened uh, down the years. And I think to get in the book, the event has had to literally turn Arsenal's history on its head. So, say in 71, I haven't focused on the, um, uh, the title decider at White Hart Lane or the cup final against Liverpool. I focused on the uh, FA Cup semi-final at Hillsborough where Arsenal drew 2-2 with Stoke. Mm. Arsenal were down and out. And as we know, Peter Storey did his thing and kind of turned Arsenal's history on its head, like in the 1987 Littlewoods Cup semi-final where um, Arsenal were losing to Tottenham and Rowcastle scored the winner and suddenly George, the George Graham revolution kind of gathers momentum. So they're kind of incidences, incidences like that. And also the events that lead up to them really as yeah. well. Um, when we're talking about things that are in fairly recent memory and even mm. 1971 to a certain extent is, uh, is, is reachable in terms of people being around, etc., how do you then go further back and look at history? You talk about the WM formation. Uh, mm. There's a chapter about Sir Henry Norris, um, yeah. who was famously media shy. Um, yeah. So, so how, does, how difficult is it to go back and try and find the context of those incidents uh, when, when it's such a long time ago? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I had to dig right back into the archives. So, like you say, in the modern era, interviews and, uh, you know, the, the amount of print on it is quite straightforward. So, for instance, on the chapters about Norris or Arsenal in the 20s and 30s, I went to the uh, archive um, in Islington where they've got the microfilm of the um, uh, Islington Gazette going back uh, through the years. So I really did trawl through those that I was actually cross-eyed. To it's like old, old-fashioned, just sitting there. Yeah, microfiche after microfiche. Absolutely, just just <laughs> me there, looking uh, looking a bit old at that time of night because I opened late on a Thursday and I was a regular visitor. They just opened the door and said, "Hi, John," and just let me get on with it, really. <laughs> but I think if you're doing this kind of book, I think you've got a kind of responsibility to readers, really, to to, to you know to find something new. I was also dead lucky, to be honest with you, because I uh, I knew Brian Woolnough before he died quite quite well, and um, he was able to give me um, a taped uh, interview that he'd done with Tom Parker, you know, Arsenal's mm. first ever captain to lift a trophy, and uh, John Harding, who's written the excellent Alex James book, he also lent me uh, a taped um, interview with with. Uh, with um, with Tom Parker and Mike Langley lent me one with Joe Hume, which I think really kind of opens up our understanding of Arsenal in the 1930s in a way that we haven't really seen before. So I was able to get some kind of more three-dimensional views on, on, on what was going on. So, I mean, Joe Hume was great because he said that in the 1927 FA Cup final, which Arsenal lost to Cardiff, the team really froze. And it's partly because they weren't 
they, they weren't really that relaxed or Chapman didn't relax them that well before the game. But by 1930, with the cup final with Huddersfield, which was Arsenal's first ever trophy, Chapman had kind of learnt his lesson and took them down to Brighton, where they were able to have a, uh, you know, a bit of uh, bit of golf, bit of fresh air, and kind of just relax. And what um, what I like from from what Hume and what Parker say is about the problems that the players have with ticket touts because. If any of uh, any listeners, you know, tried and failed to get um, a cup final ticket this year for for Hull, I think we got an allocation of twenty five thousand. In nineteen thirty, I think I'm right in saying the allocation was seven and a half thousand. And um, wow. you know, Parker and Hume were saying they were absolutely exhausted by fans hassling them for tickets. So you get these kind of three dimensional views on um, on on what's happened. And uh, I think you know the other thing um, to mention is that uh, with the formation of, of WM in 1927, I think always Herbert Chapman and to a lesser extent Charlie Buchan have been given credit for for that formation and, and rightly so. But what I've discovered is that on the very same sort of month or so that that was formed, other teams were using the WM formation without any kind of understanding of what Arsenal were doing. So it makes you think that to counter that offside trap, lots and lots of teams were thinking about ways around it and, and that Arsenal's WM might not have been the only mm. you know, WM formation around. But obviously in the era before um, footage of football and you know the internet, it's, it's hard to pin down exactly who, who founded it and when. But it wasn't just sure. Chapman and Arsenal who, who were using it. Uh, I, mean, I mean, staying in that era, it's interesting as well. Um, when you think about the, the history of Arsenal Football Club and the great players that have mm. uh, come and gone, that have been homegrown, that have arrived at the club that we paid a lot of money for. Mm. In the book, you, you talk about Charlie Buchan and saying yeah. that he only stayed at Highbury for three seasons, yet Buchan is surely the club's most important signing. Can you give us a bit of insight in, into why that is? Yeah, I mean, before before Buchan arrived at, at Arsenal, Arsenal were well. They, I don't even even know if you could call them a sleeping giant. Really, they had just hadn't achieved. They hadn't won a trophy, uh, and Chapman arrived. <clears throat> and just as um, his big kind of signature signing at Huddersfield had, had been Clem Stevenson, he brought he brought Buchan to Arsenal. And I think w- with Buchan, Arsenal got box office. Suddenly, um, fans that heard of Buckham, they they rocked up in their in their tens of thousands to see him, and Arsenal was suddenly getting the gates that that both um, Chapman and Henry Norris Henry Norris wanted, and with yeah, as I say, with with Buckham came came a swagger, and he was he was kind of I think Chapman's um, lieutenant, um, he, he sort of like like Tony Adams was with George Graham, mm. um, and Vieira was with with Wenger, Buckham was with Chapman. He a lot of speaking, you know, Joe Hume says this, that Buckham did a lot of talking in the dressing dressing room and was very influential. And Chapman kind of used Buckham to put things into into player speak, if you see what I mean, to get yeah. the respect. Because I think what I found out is that there was a lot of a lot of kind of um, people were unsure about where Arsenal were going under Chapman at first, because Arsenal did kind of flounder slightly. They they did well in his first season and then slipped back again. And through Buckham he could express what he wanted and as I say with the, with the WM formation it was really Buchan's idea Buchan pushed and pushed and pushed and um, you know what I've found is that the, 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 the players listened to Buchan and allowed um, the WM formation to be used at Arsenal and in much the same way that Clem Stevenson had done a lot of Chapman's talking at Huddersfield and that says a lot about um, 
uh, Chapman's man management, really, that he was confident and able to select just the right person to to make just the kind the right kind of move in in the dressing room. But I do think that without Bucken, we wouldn't have got Alex James and we wouldn't have got David Jack, and the whole thing wouldn't have gathered momentum. So I've stuck my neck out in the book and said that I know he's not one of the you know one of the cores on the outside of the Emirates, but I think Bucken is Arsenal's most important ever signing. Interesting. People can obviously have a read of that to uh, to decide for themselves. Coming yeah. into a sort of a more modern era, then um, you, you touch on Parma in nineteen ninety four and, and the mm. European Trophy, and um, I don't want to say it's in any way overshadowed by what happened with, with George Graham, but um, you know that was when you look back at that Parma side and the players that they had. Um, even though Arsenal had won a couple of league titles, you know, Italian football was right at the top back then. What, what's the angle in terms of that game? Well, I, I would, would say that the, the, the Palmer game is kind of like a, a war of attrition. But wars of attrition <laughs> under George Graham, you know, the, I think, I'm thinking of the, uh, the FA Cup uh, win of 1993. And, uh, you know, those games against Sheffield Wednesday, mm. they weren't pretty to watch. And they were kind of uh, creations of, of George Graham because he moulded a particular type of side that he, that he wanted. You know, he, the flair had gone, Limpar had gone, Merson, as we know, was, was beset by personal difficulties there was no no flair in the side but what George Graham was able to do before the phrase was even coined to it he was parked the bus um, and he was you know tactically superb and I think George kind of has never kind of got the credit for that down the years that um, that perhaps he deserved he that team could park the bus and and as as I think Faustino Espria said tangle Palmer up in a spider's web of, of defense um, <laughs> during the game as you say against much better players like Brolin and, and, and Aspria and it was kind of um, it was kind of I think probably in a way it was it was Graham's kind of clown, um, crowning glory um, but unfortunately Arsenal couldn't carry on playing that way if they were going to push on in the league which which they didn't you know which which they weren't able to do by that time so it was kind of like the 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 end of of the George Graham era because even by then there were um uh, whisperings about the financial improprieties with the signings of Pal Lederson and John Jensen, which led to his departure. So I've, I think I've described it in the whole, in the book maybe quite dramatically that he was already titanically holed by that stage. And really, when we were inside the the stadium in Copenhagen singing, you know, one nil, one nil to the Arsenal, the Graham era was effectively already over. Mm. And obviously, the season after that was was horrendous in terms of. The players, um, Merson's addictions coming to the fore and, and the financial scandal, but it was one last hurrah from George. Yeah, and then, of course, we Bruce Riog taking us into the Arsene Wenger era. That's right, uh, absolutely. Your, your question with regards to Arsene Wenger, um, without, I guess, trying to downplay anything he's done, but was the revolution in style only down to the manager? I mean, what is that down to uh, the changing face of, of modern football and the money that's come into it from Sky? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think obviously, I think all Arsenal fans would agree that by the time George went, something had to change. So, um, yeah, I mean, Bruce Riott came in in the, in the summer of 1995, and obviously his first two signings made um, made massive waves with Burkamp and, and, and Platt. Um, and I think Burkamp himself would admit that what Riott did was introduce a more passing style um, to Arsenal before before Wenger did. Um, he was also perhaps 
um, one of the, the first to see that perhaps Ian Wright's influence on the team was, was waning uh, in, in some ways and that it was more damaging than good perhaps for a team to rely so heavily on, on one on one front man alone. I think I think the problem with Bruce was that he didn't have that kind of revolutionary zeal, the clout that Wenger had. I mean he, he was predominantly kind of British in his in his outlook and, and in, in the way he ran things at Arsenal. Mm. And you know the difference with Arsenal and Wenger is of course that Arsenal had the the uh, the foreign connections with with Vieira's um, the petites of this world at a time when when he was um, unparalleled in being able to pluck those kind of um, almost unknown stars um, from clubs in France and Italy. So I, I, I think I think that although Rioc was never going to perhaps be long term at Arsenal, I think his um, his his kind of impact on on the club has, has been overlooked um, over the years. I mean the likes of Mark Martin Keown, um, a, a fairly um, complimentary about him still, as is Paul Merson, about the style that he wanted, and trying to get more of a more of a, a passing, moving, flowing style than we, we'd seen under George. And I think that, like with the defence, Wenger was able to pick up on that, and the fact is the momentum was already there. And of course, in Bergkamp, a club that ironically Wenger recommended. A player, sorry, that Wenger recommended to Dean before he actually arrived, before he was manager. Um, obviously, the, the, the foreign revolution, if you like, had already started. Mm. Well, we, we've touched on just a couple of those, but there's 14 uh, key moments in the book. Uh, it's called Red Letter Days, uh, and it's available now. You can find it in uh, online, good bookshops, and we'll give you a link uh, on this uh, on the blog to uh, so you can purchase there. John Sperling, thank you very much. Okay, thanks very much. The book Red Letter Days is available online. Of course, it's available from Amazon and Waterstones as an ebook. But if you want to get 30% off the uh, the actual book book, the physical book, the nice thing that you can hold in your hand and turn the pages, uh, you can go to pitchpublishing.co.uk and get a 30% discount there. If uh, that's complicated, just check today's blog. There's a link there that will take you through to the publisher's website, and you can buy that very nice book for 30% off, which is not too too bad at all. Now, if you would like to win yourself some Savile Rogue gear, you are in exactly the right place. As always, we've got some of their uh, brilliant uh, scarves and hats and things like that to give away between now and Christmas. This week, we start with two of their brand new scarves. It's called the Faithful. Uh, recommended retail price of £38, so it's a very nice prize indeed. We've got two of those to give away, two winners, and all I want you to do is answer the following question. We were talking a little bit about Bruce Rioch earlier. Who did Bruce Rioch manage immediately before he came to Arsenal? So who was the team he managed before he came to Arsenal? All you have to do then is email competition at arseblog.com with the right answer. That's competition at arseblog.com with the right answer. And uh, what else? Oh, yeah, Savile Rogue has always given us a discount code. So if you want to do some shopping on the site, if you want to buy some Christmas presents, just use the checkout code arsblog 14 arsblog 14 at checkout will give you 10% off all of the items on the uh, Savile Rogue website. It's savile-rogue.com. Scarves, hats, gloves. Uh, they've got flasks. They've got all kinds of stuff there. So you can be warm, but not only warm, warm and stylish. And I'm pretty sure, given that we're talking about style here, that by this time next year, there's going to be a Sterling Archer cashmere turtleneck available on the Savile Rogue website. 
I mean, we, we've all been through some tough times with Arsenal, but not, not without the turtleneck, right? So, um... We'll wait and see what happens. So that's the uh, that's the competition for this week. Now, though, time to look ahead to what's happening this weekend. You'd like to ease back into the inter- Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Lol with a game that would be more or less uh, an assurance of three points. That's uh, not really the case given the opposition and given our record against them in recent years. But hey, it's Manchester United and all we can do is get on with it. With me to discuss what might happen, journalist Miguel Delaney. Hi there. Hey, get on. Not so bad. Let's um, let's start by looking at two teams who um, have been great rivals in the past. Um, a brilliant history. Now, perhaps not in the doldrums, but struggling to reach those heights again. Uh, and it's it's going to make for an interesting game because both teams obviously have their deficiencies this season. Both teams have deficiencies in defence, and they're they're strongest in attack. I mean, how how do you see this one playing out? Um, I maybe slightly fancy Arsenal for him, but I think it's going to be one of those. It's going to be such an open game because of the. Uh, the circumstances of both teams right now, that it is, it could be one of those helter-skelter ones where it could really go either way. Um, like, and it's interesting you mentioned that, I suppose, the, the history, because I think there has been a bit of nostalgia for that lately, particularly, I suppose, with Keane's book and what he had to say about Arsenal, in it? I mean, what, the, the, the line I liked from it was, uh, I hated them, it was brilliant. Yeah, um, I think that's I, what everyone thinks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, even like last week, I had to do a series for uh, ESPN, the, um, the most intense rivalries of, uh, of basically the last 60 years in Europe. And, I mean, we had that as number three. So, like, I, I mean, just even, even looking through it, that really, really did set the template for when you kind of – what you, you most associate with the emotion of a rivalry, the aggression, the um, kind of forcing each other to be better, really. Uh, that was kind of the high mark, whereas now it's, uh, I suppose, it's intense in a different way. I think we're seeing the two teams by far the worst energy record this season – and maybe both uh, below where they would have anticipated to be right now. Although I think, well, as the league, as the league says, Arsenal are a little bit ahead of United. The uh, introduction of Louis van Gaal for David Moyes in the summer, um, I suppose, gave hope to a lot of United fans because of his reputation, because of his standing in the game. But he's had a, d- a difficult start. Um, just four wins 
in his time. Now, obviously, there's no European games in that this season. Um, is it a period of adjustment for him? Has the side been so badly affected by injuries that he's just not able to find any balance? Um, how, how do you assess his start to his career at Old Trafford? Well, I think it's a few things, really. Um, although I do think the record should be better, but that's not necessarily a huge cause for concern for United yet. Um, like, I mean, I, I, I think... On the whole, I'd be broadly positive about the Van Gaal era in a way that I wouldn't have been about Moyes at all. I mean, I suppose this is actually quite relevant for Arsenal, given what's potentially coming down the line in you know four to six years. Um, but for all United talked about their succession plans, I remember the, the amount of comments from David Gill about how they have a they have a succession plan in place. They couldn't really have handled that much worse. The transition from Ferguson to what happens next. How much? Of, how much of that was down to Ferguson, though? Because he seemed to be very, very behind Moyes, and and perhaps there was an element of him looking at a fellow Scott and thinking yeah. he's got what it takes. Well, I think Ferguson tried to push the line lately that he wasn't as uh, as responsible for the uh, the Moyes appointment as he as has been made out. Now, from what I've heard from from source of the club is that, and I think what the majority of people would be uh, more realistically believe is that basically he handpicked Moyes. He was kind of, he basically anointed him. Um, and it was almost a case of the right personality, but the wrong manager. And, and I do think that, I mean, they, they basically needed someone because, because of the amount of control Ferguson had over every, every aspect of that club. And, he, and because of the way his individual aura made all these things work, they were all kind of attuned to him. They needed they needed a kind of a similar presence to come in and just keep that that mindset that just, just to ensure that there was no like that everything held together. Whereas they basically they didn't appoint someone that did that. And I think Van Gaal would be more correct then because I think as everyone says the club now he does have that charisma in a way that that Moyes didn't. And now because of what happened in Moyes, even though this isn't all Moyes' fault, Van Gaal has to pick up the pieces from that as well as. As well as kind of bring in his own style, as well as adjust to a new squad, as well as, well as make the um, the adjustments to the squad itself and bring in the additions that really should have been afforded Moyes as well. Yeah, I mean, and you're right to say that it's something that Arsenal are going to have to face. I don't know about four to six years. Uh, I don't think Arsene Wenger is going to last that long, to be honest. But even if he sees out the three years of his new contract. He is probably the last of these um, generational managers, somebody who's going to span decades uh, at a football club. It doesn't seem to be the way football works anymore. So f- from an Arsenal point of view, maybe they could look at what happened at United and you know learn some lessons. Well, I think completely. But I think maybe that's why there have been some kind of at least beneficial alterations in the club in the last few months. I mean, there's, like the, there's been so much discussion, even as we touched on there, about the uh, the physical conditioning side that they have looked to address that because I think I mean I'm sure you've discussed it so much yourself but it had, it, that 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 whole the, the regular injury crisis have been painted as as one of the um, one illustration of, of how, how this process can happen how one man can be in charge of every single aspect of a club and behave like it kind of be very autocratic about it hmm. and that not necessarily always being beneficial at least not being beneficial when the kind of game evolves as we've seen lately. And I think I don't think we'll see a situation like we have with both these men where they are absolutely every single aspect of the club is just, you know, you know all, all roads 
lead, lead to the man at the top. Yeah, was Ferguson slightly different, though, in the sense that he tended to be a bit less hands-on when it came to day-to-day uh, training ground stuff. Now, we know Arsene Wenger is like stopwatch and his sessions are done this way and that way and the other. And he's got his team of coaches who obviously have uh, some measure of, of input, but Ferguson always seemed happier to to delegate to a, a number two and he changes number two on a regular basis to keep things going. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that's spot on. I mean, there was Dr. Ferguson would rarely, rarely be actually on the training pitch in his latter days other than kind of those brief periods when... He had to. He was in between number twos, um, but again, even still, it was it was still a, a structure that he facilitated, still a man that he had picked, um, and still you know a system that he had signed off on. But you're right, yeah, Wenger remains more more hands on. He probably always was a bit more of um, a coach in that sense, Wenger. Yeah. Like I remember hearing one account from a former player about how Ferguson's great strength in that regard was not necessarily coaching per se, but before a match, he would he was the master of the little details or spotting a weakness in an opposition player, whereas Wenger was someone who always looked to actually bring out, like I suppose despite results, despite recent results, what kind of maybe Rodgers and Martinez um, symbolise now. These, pure man- these managers who are more purely coaches who will try and bring out the technique of their players. Is it coincidental that both teams have issues in terms of defence, but not just the injuries that they have, but also the recruitment. That defensive recruitment seemed to be a challenge for both of them uh, this summer. Um, yes, well, I suppose it's the same problem if through different routes. I mean, uh, uh, yes, but you're, we're well aware of uh, the, the issues that Arsenal, I suppose, the fact. <laughs> now, actually, I suppose one thing there is similarity, I, from the impression I get is both teams have their top targets because they see that as a certain as a certain um, value or a certain standard of value. And if they don't get those targets, they seem less inclined to, uh, to accept maybe the next level down in the way that other squads possibly don't. Um, like it was something Mourinho talked about lately where they, he said one benefit they had in the kind of Fabregas negotiations was because they didn't absolutely have to get them. So they're kind of strength in Chelsea's hand. Mm. They had a list of options. And sometimes you get the impression that's not quite the case with Arsenal or United. I mean, from, from my understanding in the summer, you know, like despite the fact that they so badly needed a central defender, uh, they basically had Hummels on their list and not much else beyond that. And now they Vermeilen. Well, Vermeilen, of course. Vermeilen as well. Yeah, the mm. big one for me. Um, yeah, but, 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 but even, but even Vermeulen, I think he was seen as in the, in the kind of Rojo role where they still, they still needed that commanding presence, which they never signed in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult area at the moment. The, the, yeah. Not to say there's a dearth of top class defenders, but they are, they are certainly difficult to find. Um, you see, if not, maybe kind of top class defenders is the wrong word for, but there's a dearth of actual kind of, of these commanders. Uh, you know, I suppose Mertesacker could be that to a certain degree, although I don't think he's absolutely top level. Maybe Vidic is at his peak, you know, obviously someone like Chiellini. But yeah, there's not that really, someone really willing to get dirty about it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, Chelsea have that, obviously, with their captain, who's you know, willing to get dirty in all manner of ways, but we won't go there. Um, so, some interesting stuff <laughs> Some interesting stuff during the week about Jack Wilshire, um, who's performed pretty well for England in a deep-lying midfield role. And he's spoken about how 
Uh, he quite likes playing there. Arsene Wenger doesn't really see him there uh, for Arsenal. How do you view the way he's performed for England? And is there a kind of short-termism to this belief now that Wilshire can do uh, a job as a as a defensive midfielder, a deep-lying midfielder, when, to, to my mind anyway, I don't think he ticks enough of the boxes that Arsenal need in that position? No, I think I'd be inclined to agree with, agree with you. But I do wonder how much of a victim, and this might be something we see over the long term, that, that Wilshire is to his injuries. I mean, when, when he first broke through, the one thing I remember about him is he had a little burst of pace where he, he'd, get, he'd, he'd beat a man, got those extra 10 yards, and that would make a real difference. Whereas now, I've noticed it so many times, anytime I've watched Arsenal over the past, over the past year and a half or so, he'll beat that player, but invariably he seems to kind of go down. And, it's almost, and I think that a lot of the time... That's almost tactile because he knows he doesn't have the pace to go past him away. So we kind of take take the trip. So Arsenal kind of maintain possession, mm. but it kind of takes something away from his game. Now, I mean, this all I can do at the moment is kind of speculate on this. But I wonder whether how, does that mean he's lost just that extra trust he had because of the injuries, or whether it's still something something mental or something psychological that he, that he can eventually overcome. Mm, I, well, I think it might be a fitness thing overall because he's been a bit stop-start um, yeah. at times. And, and, the, and the best game I think we saw from him this season was against Manchester City when he did actually show that, that burst of pace and that ability to, to drive through. But from a, from a deep-lying um, midfield position is not necessarily the quality you want from, from that player. Um, I mean, if it comes off, it's great. But if you get caught in possession, that high up the pitch or that uh, deep rather in your own half then inevitably it's going to prove costly and Arsenal losing the ball in midfield has been their downfall on more than one occasion this season well well, I suppose that's that's, that's, that's the other side as well you do wonder whether he always has that kind of rush about it like I wouldn't do him the the service of saying he's he's old-fashioned or kind of you know tactically unaware like that um, as they, kind of those cliches go, yeah. Well, I, I, I think he's probably better served a little bit further forward, maybe with someone protecting Wilshire. But then you wonder, does he have the kind of the the total range of passing to play that role? Mm. Good pass for uh, Oxide Chamberlain during the week for England. It was. It was, it was a superb ball. Mm. But, but, but I mean, in the sense that. Um, he couldn't do an Arteta on it. If you, I mean, I don't think yeah, his game yeah. is, you know, for, for whatever Arteta's flaws, and you know, he, he does have them. He's certainly uh, a calm presence on the ball and is not wasteful. Whereas Wilshire tends to overcook it from time to time. That's exactly it. Like I, I was better going to go into the uh, the, Ger- the Gerard hero complex. There. I don't think Wilshire Wilshire's a bit more. Or he's a lot fair and a bit more polished than that. But there is still an element of he he's willing to take the risk in the way other players won't. And that's not always a good thing. Mm. So look, this game on on Saturday tomorrow is, is coming down to attack. Uh, Manchester United, I don't know what the the situation with Falcao is, but obviously uh, they've got uh, Rooney, they've got Van Persie, they've got Yanezai, they've got uh, Angel de Maria, there's Juan Mata, Arsenal with uh, Alexis, Danny Welbeck, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Olivier Giroud's back in the squad, Theo Walcott back in the squad, Aaron Ramsey um, capable of goals. It does feel like it's going to be something of a shootout. Yeah, completely. And one of those games where both both teams are kind of heavily loaded. Now, in that regard, actually, I think um, Wenger could be more willing. I mean, we've seen it a few times where they're not not necessarily so gung-ho. And even in the Chelsea game, for for all that we've seen his um, his much-discussed tactical flaws, where particularly against Chelsea and United in the past, they get caught up behind the, they get caught up behind the fullbacks. 
he did seem a bit more willing to kind of put the, or to position the team 20 yards further back. So you do wonder whether he'll do that to kind of mitigate against that, particularly given the, la- the last match against Swansea. Um, although in saying that, uh, la- the last game I was at was United against Palace. And with Carrick in the team, it did seem as if um, Van Gaal, or, well, United were conspicuously um, a lot further back themselves, much less gung-ho. Although after the game, Van Gaal did say that at halftime he had to tell them to push forward. Mm. So um, <laughs> I remember watching that game, and what was interesting was, um, you know, lo- looking at it from a completely neutral point of view, was how well Crystal Palace were able to break against United in, in the second half. Yeah. Um, and obviously a lack of quality in the final third meant they couldn't take advantage of that. But uh, it, it just struck me that it's quite similar to Arsenal, who, who look at their most vulnerable the moment one of their own attacks breaks down. Basically, yeah, and I, but in, in that regard, I do think that's why Carrick could be so crucial. I mean, he's been he's been another player that's kind of been so much debate about him in the last eighteen months over how you know how good he actually is. But he does kind of offer that. I suppose, like Arteta, there's a kind of a, a fundamental tactical intelligence to him. I mean, I, I mean, the one thing I know, even though it was it was only Palace, quote unquote, the way he just well, like he offered what United have been missing so far this season. Someone to know when to just drop back. And, and and fill the gap and even allow Blin go forward. Mm. So he do, he does offer a bit more structure to the team, even though there's obviously a wider debate over in the long term whether United need to push on with someone better than Carrick. All right. Well, look, we'll uh, we'll leave it there for now and look forward to a five ten goal game <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at the Emirates tomorrow night. Miguel Delaney, thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you to Miguel. You can find him on Twitter at Miguel Delaney at Miguel Delaney. Um, right. So heading into this weekend and obviously beyond because we've got. Champions League action in midweek against Dortmund. Um, This promises to be a very interesting few days, not just because of what happened against Swansea. You want to respond. You want to bounce back from what was a bad defeat, uh, an avoidable defeat. Like most of the bad results we've had this season, they've been pretty much avoidable because you can usually point to uh, an incident or two in a game where if we'd done the basics or done what we should have done, then... Um, we wouldn't have conceded goals. And it's a, it's a kind of game that could really lift the mood. If we put in a good performance against United and beat Manchester United, it'd do wonders for the confidence, not just of the players, but also the fans. Now, that's not to say one game is a, a fix-all or a, an answer to all our problems, but when you think about what the reaction might be to not winning, and I don't just mean a draw, if we were to lose against Manchester United the questions that we all have would become, well, I don't know what they become. Louder? More aggressive? I, I don't know. So it's a huge game uh, against United on, on Saturday. It's a game we we simply can't afford to lose, and it's it's probably a game that we, we have to win. It's a game that could spark some life into our season. We could play Dortmund and win, and, you know, after two games like that, you're thinking, okay, well, if we can beat United and Dortmund, then, look, you can take the belief into the other games. But then if you are if you don't get the results that you want, and you're going into a game against Southampton who are playing very well, you've got to go away to Galatasaray, probably having to get something from that game uh, to qualify for the knockout stages of the Champions League, uh, confidence low, uh, everyone frustrated and angry. Well, it wouldn't be a good place to be. Um, so we've got to hope that the players can really dig in and can put in a performance and can attack uh, as well as they have done all season. Uh, and can defend 
more importantly, as well as they have done all season, where we've got to be aware of uh, moves breaking down. We've got to be aware of where we are positionally. We've got to be probably a lot more cautious. We've got to have players who aren't trying to make things happen when they don't need to make things happen, as we saw, for example, uh, for the Wigan, or not Wigan, the Swansea equaliser. Uh, a couple of weeks back. Team news is that Mikel Arteta is back. Uh, Jack Wilshere has played a couple of games for England. Aaron Ramsey. I think he might go with an arteta Wilshire ramsey midfield. Um, and maybe Oxlade-Chamberlain in there as well. Alexis just behind Welbeck, something like that. But he's going to make the team, or he should anyway, make the team more compact and make sure that we're not cut open through the centre of midfield and make sure that the guys who are in midfield do their defensive duty. And if we can keep it relatively tight, then we've got enough to trouble what is going to be a very makeshift Manchester United defence. On the other hand, they'll probably look at the quality they have up front and think they can do the same to what's a pretty makeshift Arsenal defence. So, as I've said on previous podcasts, I just don't have a clue what's going to happen. It's impossible to know with this Arsenal side uh, what we're going to do in terms of performance. We can play badly and go ahead and then sink ourselves. And, or, you know, you just do not know. You'd be looking for something like the Manchester City game where even though we went behind, we responded brilliantly and scored a couple of great goals and played pretty well that day, all things told, until about the last 10 minutes where we chucked it away. But there were some mitigating circumstances there. Uh, Arteta's back, as I said. Giroud is going to be in the squad. Theo Walcott will be in the squad and likely to get some minutes uh, one way or the other. The news isn't so good about Lauren Koscielny and Matthew Debushi. They're still likely to be out for another three, four, Four weeks anyway. That's what the manager said um, to the official website there yesterday. So that's still an issue, obviously, um, because of our, our defensive problems. Uh, Monreal, I suspect, will play center half alongside Mertesacker. Chambers, a right back, gives a left back. And we just have to hope that that back four gets the protection it needs from the rest of the team without it damaging what the team can do from an attacking point of view. So look, uh, your guess is as good as mine as to what's going to happen. But we will discuss it in the Arscast Extra on Monday. Myself and James will be here for the aftermath. Or is there, what's the positive version of aftermath? Aftermath always seems something like an explosion, doesn't it? So let's hope it's not an aftermath aftermath in the wake of or in, in light of what could be a great victory. We'll be here anyway to discuss it all and take your questions. So make sure you tune in on Monday for the Arscast Extra. We'll have another Arscast next Friday. Let's keep everything crossed for this week, for the weekend, for tomorrow that the goal does ricochet in off Van Persie's face or, or testicles or whatever, any part of him, I don't care. It can ricochet in off anyone, frankly, once we get the three points. And then midweek, uh, we've got to put a stop to Dortmund's very impressive European form. Not so good in the Bundesliga, but in Europe, they're four out of four. And uh, yeah, they're going to they're gonna top the group, but we could make it a little bit scary for them if we can get a result on Wednesday. So let's keep everything cross for that. And hopefully next time we chat, it's, uh, it's all a bit more cheery and happy. And um, yeah, that would be nice. So until then, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye.
I am Achilles, god of injuries. And I look down on this arsenal in despair and dismay. This French, this Giro, he has returneth four weeks ahead of schedule. How dare they displease the god of injuries like this? I must strike them down with furious vengeance. How will I smite them? A Wilshire cruciate? A Welbeck hamstring snapped like an old banjo string? Or shall I get my only son on earth, Shawcross, to Shawcross Alexis? Decisions, decisions. Wait, I have it. I shall make Sonogo's ankles into jelly, and he won't play for 18 months. <laughs> uh, um, back to the drawing board, I fear. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.